Welcome to the Weird and Loathsome Podcast. I am your pseudonymous host, Brian K. DeVille. The following is part two of a two-part reading of The Rats in the Walls by Howard Phillips Lovecraft. In part one, our protagonist restored his ancestral home in Britain, researched his family's notorious history, and discovered the ongoing horror of an unexplained and possibly supernatural plague of rats in the walls. Enjoy. I now heard steps in the corridor, and in another moment two servants pushed open the massive door. They were searching the house for some unknown source of disturbance which had thrown all the cats into a snarling panic and caused them to plunge precipitously down several flights of stairs and squat, yowling before the closed door of the subcellar. I asked them if they had heard the rats, but they replied in the negative. And when I turned to call their attention to the sounds in the panels, I realized that the noise had ceased. With the two men, I went down to the door of the subcellar, but found the cats already dispersed. Later, I resolved to explore the crypt below, but for the present, I merely made a round of the traps. All were sprung, yet all were tenantless. Satisfying myself that no one had heard the rats save the felines and me, I sat in my study till morning, thinking profoundly and recalling every scrap of legend I had unearthed concerning the building I inhabited. I slept some in the forenoon, leaning back in the one comfortable library chair which my medieval plan of furnishing could not banish. Later I telephoned to Captain Norris, who came over and helped me explore the subcellar? Absolutely nothing untoward was found, although we could not repress a thrill at the knowledge that this vault was built by Roman hands. Every low arch and massive pillar was Roman, not the debased Romanesque of the bungling Saxons, but the severe and harmonious classicism of the age of the Caesars. Indeed, the walls abounded with inscriptions familiar to the antiquarians who had repeatedly explored the place. Things like P. Jete Prop Temp Dona and L. Praex Biz Pontifi Attis. The reference to Attis made me shiver for I had read Catullus and knew something of the hideous rites of the Eastern god, whose worship was so mixed with that of Sibylle. Norris and I, by the light of lanterns, tried to interpret the odd and nearly effaced designs on certain irregularly rectangular blocks of stone generally held to be altars, 
but could make nothing of them. We remembered that one pattern, a sort of rayed sun, was held by students to imply a non-Roman origin, suggesting that these altars had merely been adopted by the Roman priests from some older and perhaps aboriginal temple on the same site. On one of these blocks were some brown stains which made me wonder. The largest, in the center of the room, had certain features on the upper surface which indicated its connection with fire, probably burnt offerings. Such were the sights in that crypt before whose door the cats had howled, and where Norris and I now determined to pass the night. Couches were brought down by the servants, who were told not to mind any nocturnal actions of the cats, and Blackman was admitted as much for help as for companionship. We decided to keep the great oak door, a modern replica with slits for ventilation, tightly closed, and with this attended to, we retired, lanterns still burning, to await whatever might occur. The vault was very deep in the foundations of the priory, and undoubtedly far down on the face of the beetling limestone cliff overlooking the waste valley. That it had been the goal of the scuffling and unexplainable rats I could not doubt. The why I could not tell. As we lay there expectantly, I found my vigil occasionally mixed with half-formed dreams from which the uneasy motions of the cat across my feet would rouse me. These dreams were not wholesome, but horribly like the one I had had the night before. I saw again the twilit grotto and the swine herd with his unmentionable fungus beefs wallowing in filth, and as I looked at these things they seemed nearer and more distinct so distinct that I could almost observe their features. Then I did observe the flabby features of one of them, and awaked with such a scream that Blackman started up, whilst Captain Norris, who had not slept, laughed considerably. Norris might have laughed more, or perhaps less, had he known what it was that made me scream, but I did not remember myself till later. Ultimate horror often paralyzes memory in a merciful way. Norris waked me when the phenomenon began. Out of the same frightful dream I was called by his gentle shaking and his urging to listen to the cats. Indeed, there was much to listen to, for beyond the closed door at the head of the stone steps was a veritable nightmare of feline yelling and clawing, whilst Blackman, unmindful of his kindred outside, was running excitedly around the bare stone walls in which I heard the same babble of scurrying rats that had troubled me the night before. An acute terror now rose within me, for here were anomalies which nothing normal could well explain. These rats, if not the creatures of a madness which I shared with the cats alone, must be burrowing and sliding in Roman walls I had thought to be of solid limestone blocks. Unless perhaps the action of water through more than seventeen centuries had eaten winding tunnels which rodent bodies had worn clear and ample, but even so the spectral horror was no less, for if these were living vermin, why did not Norris hear their disgusting commotion, 
Why did he urge me to watch Blackman and listen to the cats outside? And why did he guess wildly and vaguely at what could have aroused them? By the time I had managed to tell him, as rationally as I could, what I thought I was hearing, my ears gave me the last fading impression of the scurrying, which had retreated still downward, far underneath this deepest of subcellars, till it seemed as if the whole cliff below were riddled with questing rats. Norris was not as skeptical as I had anticipated, but instead seemed profoundly moved. He motioned to me to notice that the cats at the door had ceased their clamor, as if giving up the rats for lost, whilst Blackman had a burst of renewed restlessness and was crawling frenetically around the bottom of the large stone altar in the center of the room, which was nearer Norris's couch than mine. My fear of the unknown was at this point very great. Something astounding had occurred, and I saw that Captain Norris, a younger, stouter, and presumably more naturally materialistic man, was affected fully as much as myself, perhaps because of his lifelong and intimate familiarity with local legend. We could, for the moment, do nothing but watch the old black cat as he pawed with decreasing fervor at the base of the altar, occasionally looking up and mewing to me in that persuasive manner which he used when he wished me to perform some favor for him. Norris now took a lantern close to the altar and examined the place where Blackman was pawing, silently kneeling and scraping away the lichens of centuries which joined the massive pre-Roman block to the tessellated floor. He did not find anything and was about to abandon his effort when I noticed a trivial circumstance which made me shudder, even though it implied nothing more than I had already imagined. I told him of it, and we both looked at its almost imperceptible manifestation with the fixedness of fascinated discovery and acknowledgement. It was only this, that the flame of the lantern set down near the altar was slightly but certainly flickering from a draft of air which it had not before received and which came indubitably from the crevice between floor and altar where Norris was scraping away the lichens. We spent the rest of the night in the brilliantly lighted study, nervously discussing what we should do next. The discovery that some vault deeper than the deepest known masonry of the Romans underlay this accursed pile some vault unsuspected by the curious antiquarians of three centuries, would have been sufficient to excite us without any background of the sinister. As it was, the fascination became twofold, and we paused in doubt whether to abandon our search and quit the priory forever in superstitious caution, or to gratify our sense of adventure and brave whatever horrors might await us in the unknown depths. By morning we had compromised and decided to go to London to gather a group of archaeologists and scientific men fit to cope with the mystery. It should be mentioned that before leaving the subcellar, we had vainly tried to move the central altar which we now recognized as the gate to a new pit of nameless fear. What secret would open the gate, wiser men than we would have to find. 
During many days in London, Captain Norris and I presented our facts, conjectures, and legendary anecdotes to five eminent authorities, all men who could be trusted to respect any family disclosures which future exploration might develop. We found most of them little disposed to scoff, but instead intensely interested and sincerely sympathetic. It is hardly necessary to name them all, but I may say that they included Sir William Brinton, whose excavations in the Trode excited most of the world in their day. As we all took the train for Anchester, I felt myself poised on the brink of frightful revelations, a sensation symbolized by the air of mourning among the many Americans at the unexpected death of the President on the other side of the world. On the evening of August 7th, we reached Exum Priory, where the servants assured me that nothing unusual had occurred. The cats, even old Blackman, had been perfectly placid, and not a trap in the house had been sprung. We were to begin exploring on the following day, awaiting which I assigned well-appointed rooms to all my guests. I myself retired in my own tower chamber, with Blackman across my feet. Sleep came quickly, but hideous dreams assailed me. There was a vision of a Roman feast like that of Trimalchio, with a horror in a covered platter. Then came that damnable recurrent thing about the swine herd and his filthy drove in the twilit grotto. Yet when I awoke it was full daylight with normal sounds in the house below. The rats, living or spectral, had not troubled me, and Blackman was quietly sleeping. On going down, I found that the same tranquility had prevailed elsewhere, a condition which one of the assembled savants, a fellow named Thornton, devoted to the psychic, rather absurdly laid to the fact that I had now been shown the thing which certain forces had wished to show me. All was now ready, and at 11 a.m. our entire group of seven men, bearing powerful electric searchlights and implements of excavation, went down to the subcellar and bolted the door behind us. Blackman was with us, for the investigators found no occasion to despise his excitability and were indeed anxious that he be present in case of obscure rodent manifestations. We noted the Roman inscriptions and unknown altered designs only briefly, for three of the savants had already seen them, and all knew their characteristics. Prime attention was paid to the momentous central altar, and within an hour Sir William Brinton had caused it to tilt backward, balanced by some unknown species of counterweight. There now lay revealed such a horror as would have overwhelmed us had we not been prepared. Through a nearly square opening in the tiled floor, sprawling on a flight of stone steps so prodigiously worn that it was little more than an inclined plane at the center, was a ghastly array of human or semi-human bones. Those which retained their collocations as skeletons showed attitudes of panic and fear, and over all were the marks of rodent gnawing. The skulls denoted nothing short of utter idiocy, cretinism, or primitive semi-apedom. Above the hellishly littered steps, 
arched a descending passage seemingly chiseled from the solid rock and conducting a current of air. This current was not a sudden and noxious rush as from a closed vault, but a cooled breeze with something of freshness in it. We did not pause long, but shiveringly began to clear a passage down the steps. It was then that Sir William, examining the hewn walls, made the odd observation that the passage, according to the direction of the strokes, must have been chiseled from beneath. I must be very deliberate now, and choose my words. After plowing down a few steps amidst the gnawed bones, we saw that there was light ahead, not any mystic phosphorescence, but a filtered daylight which could not come except from some unknown fissure in the cliff that overlooked the waste valley. That such fissures had escaped notice from outside was hardly remarkable, for not only is the valley wholly uninhabited, but the cliff is so high and beetling that only an aeronaut could study its face in detail. A few steps more, and our breaths were literally snatched from us by what we saw, so literally that Thornton, the psychic investigator, actually fainted in the arms of the dazed man who stood behind him. Norris, his plump face utterly white and flabby, simply cried out inarticulately, whilst I think that what I did was to gasp or hiss and cover my eyes. The man behind me, the only one of the party older than I, croaked the hackneyed, My God! in the most cracked voice I ever heard. Of seven cultivated men, only Sir William Brinton retained his composure, a thing more to his credit because he led the party and must have seen the sight first. It was a twilit grotto of enormous height, stretching away farther than any eye could see, a subterraneous world of limitless mystery and horrible suggestion. There were buildings and other architectural remains. In one terrified glance I saw a weird pattern of tumuli, a savage circle of monoliths, a low-domed Roman ruin, a sprawling Saxon pile, and an early English edifice of wood but all these were dwarfed by the ghoulish spectacle presented by the general surface of the ground. For yards about the steps extended an insane tangle of human bones, or bones at least as human as those on the steps. Like a foamy sea they stretched, some fallen apart, but others wholly or partly articulated as skeletons these latter invariably in postures of demoniac frenzy, either fighting off some menace or clutching other forms with cannibal intent. When Dr. Trask, the anthropologist, stooped to classify the skulls, he found a degraded mixture which utterly baffled him. They were mostly lower than the Piltdown Man in the scale of evolution, but in every case definitely human. 
Many were of higher grade, and a very few were the skulls of supremely and sensitively developed types. All the bones were gnawed, mostly by rats, but somewhat by others of the half-human drove. Mixed with them were tiny bones of rats, fallen members of the lethal army which closed the ancient epoch. I wonder that any man among us lived and kept his sanity through that hideous day of discovery. Not Hoffman or Huseman's could conceive a scene more wildly incredible, more frenetically repellent, or more gothically grotesque than the twilight grotto through which we seven staggered, each stumbling on revelation after revelation, and trying to keep for the nonce from thinking of the events which must have taken place there three hundred years, or thousand, or two thousand, or ten thousand years ago. It was the antechamber of hell, and poor Thornton fainted away again when Trask told him that some of the skeleton things must have descended as quadrupeds through the last twenty or more generations. Horror piled on horror as we began to interpret the architectural remains. The quadruped things, with their occasional recruits from the biped class, had been kept in stone pens, out of which they must have broken in their last delirium of hunger or rat fear. There had been great herds of them, evidently fattened on the coarse vegetables whose remains could be found as a sort of poisonous ensilage from the bottom of huge stone bins older than Rome. I knew now why my ancestors had had such excessive gardens. Would to heaven I could forget. The purpose of the herds I did not have to ask. Sir William, standing with his searchlight in the Roman ruin, translated aloud the most shocking ritual I have ever known, and told of the diet of the antediluvian cult which the priests of Sibylle found and mingled with their own. Norris, used as he was to the trenches, could not walk straight when he came out of the English building. It was a butcher shop and kitchen. He had expected that, but it was too much to see familiar English implements in such a place, and to read familiar English graffiti there, some as recent as 1610. I could not go in that building. That building whose demon activities were stopped only by the dagger of my ancestor Walter de la Porte. What I did venture to enter was the low Saxon building, whose oaken door had fallen, and there I found a terrible row of ten stone cells with rusty bars. Three had tenants, all skeletons of high grade, and on the bony forefinger of one I found a seal ring with my own coat of arms. Sir William found a vault with far older cells below the Roman chapel, but these cells were empty. Below them was a low crypt with cases of formerly arranged bones, some of them bearing terrible parallel inscriptions carved in Latin, Greek, 
and the tongues of the Phrygia. Meanwhile, Dr. Trask had opened one of the prehistoric tumuli and brought to light skulls which were slightly more human than a gorilla's and which bore indescribable ideographic carvings. Through all this horror, my cat stalked unperturbed. Once, I saw him monstrously perched atop a mountain of bones, and wondered at the secrets that might lie behind his yellow eyes. Having grasped, to some slight degree, the frightful revelations of this twilight area, an area so hideously foreshadowed by my recurrent dream, we turned to that apparently boundless depth of midnight cavern where no ray of light from the cliff could penetrate. We shall never know what sightless Stygian worlds yawn beyond the little distance we went, for it was decided that such secrets are not good for mankind, but there was plenty to engross us close at hand, for we had not gone far before the searchlights showed that accursed infinity of pits in which the rats had feasted, and whose sudden lack of replenishment had driven the ravenous rodent army first to turn on the living herds of starving things, and then to burst forth from the priory in that historic orgy of devastation which the peasants will never forget. God, those carrion black pits of sawed-picked bones and opened skulls, those nightmare chasms choked with the pithecanthropoid, Celtic, Roman, and English bones of countless unhallowed centuries. Some of them were full, and none can say how deep they had once been. Others were still bottomless to our searchlights and peopled by unnameable fancies. What, I thought, of the hapless rats that stumbled into such traps amidst the blackness of their quests in this grisly Tartarus. Once my foot slipped near a horribly yawning brink, and I had a moment of ecstatic fear. I must have been musing a long time, for I could not see any of the party but the plump Captain Norris. Then there came a sound from that inky, boundless farther distance that I thought I knew, and I saw my old black cat dart past me like a winged Egyptian god, straight into the illimitable gulf of the unknown. But I was not far behind, for there was no doubt after another second. It was the eldritch scurrying of those fiend-born rats, always questing for new horrors and determined to lead me on even onto those grinning caverns of Earth's center where Nyarlathotep, the mad, faceless god, howls blindly to the piping of two amorphous, idiot flute players. My searchlight expired, but still I ran. I heard voices and yowls and echoes, but above all there gently rose that impious, insidious scurrying, gently rising, rising as a stiff, bloated corpse gently rises above an oily river that flows under 
endless onyx bridges to a black, putrid sea, something bumped into me. Something soft and plump. It must have been the rats. The vicious, gelatinous, ravenous army that feast on the dead and the living. Why shouldn't rats eat Adela poor as Adela poor eats forbidden things? The war ate my boy. Damn them all. And the Yanks ate Carfax with flames and burnt grandsire Delapore and the secret. No, no, I tell you, I am not that demon swine herd in the twilight grotto. It was not Edward Norris's fat face on that flabby fungus thing. Who says I am Adela poor? He lived, but my boy died. Shall a Norris hold the lands of Adela poor? It's voodoo, I tell you, that spotted snake. Curse you, Thornton. I'll teach you to faint at what my family do. Splud, thou stinkard. I'll learn you how to gust. Would you swink me likewise? Magna Mater. Magna Mater. Artis. Dia ad achtia ad oten. Agis bast darnak hort. Donis dolis hort. Agis liatza. Uncle, uncle. That is what they say, I said, when they found me in the blackness after three hours. Found me crouching in the blackness over the plump, half-eaten body of Captain Norris, with my own cat leaping and tearing at my throat. Now they have blown up Exum Priory taken my blackman away from me, and shut me into this barred room at Hanwell with fearful whispers about my heredity and experiences. Thornton is in the next room, but they prevent me from talking to him. They are trying, too, to suppress most of the facts concerning the Priory. When I speak of poor Norris, they accuse me of a hideous thing but they must know that I did not do it. They must know it was the rats, the slithering, scurrying rats whose scampering will never let me sleep, the demon rats that race behind the padding in this room and beckon me down to greater horrors than I have ever known, the rats they can never hear, the rats... The Rats in the Walls. The proceeding has been a recording in two parts of The Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft. The story was written in 1923 
and first published in 1924. It is a well-crafted and haunting tale of family horror. It is also a story of class dichotomy in which the rich exploit the poor for their sustenance in a peculiarly literal and horrible way. It has the very Lovecraftian theme of one's inability to escape their own heritage, as well as the implicit warning not to delve into family secrets which are best kept secret or forgotten. It also highlights the amount of research which is conducted by Lovecraft for his fiction, and it helps to bring a verisimilitude to the works. This is true of the historical research done by Lovecraft. The use of the cult of Sibylle and Attis is a real-world example of a full-on orgiastic and ancient cult led by eunuch priests, which is a real-world example of just the sort of thing that Lovecraft projects into the modern day, really adds something to it, and shows that he was familiar with the archaeological understanding of the ancient Greek and pre-Roman religious practices as they were understood at his time. It also shows Lovecraft's interest in and research towards the current scientific consensus of the day. This is the second story by Lovecraft for the podcast, and it is the second story in a row which references Piltdown Man. The Piltdown Man was not shown to be a hoax until well after Lovecraft's death, and the discovery of the part-human, part-ape skull helped to confirm the modern scientific consensus and hugely racist notion of evolution's ascent from ape to man. Only very much later would careful excavation of non-human hominids help make it clear that it was bipedalism that evolved much earlier after our splint from a common ancestor of chimpanzees and to lead to the understanding that modern humans did not descend or ascend from a direct lineage that came from creatures most closely resembling the morphology of the other great apes. It's possible that these discoveries, including the origins of humankind in sub-Saharan Africa, might have done something to help Lovecraft revise his retrograde views on race and human evolution, but who knows? In any event, this tale of subterranean terror in the ancient ancestral catacombs is a chilling addition for the show. My name is Brian K. DeVille, and I hope that you have enjoyed this weird and loathsome podcast.